Thank you, folks, for tuning in to this episode of the Federalist Files. We're going to be going over Federalist number 66 today. It is titled, Objections to the Power of the Senate to Set as a Court for Impeachments Further Considered. It's written by Alexander Hamilton, March 8th, 1788. Uh, topics include Hamilton, he defends the powers of impeachment and defends the intermixture of powers. So this specifically, this paper... It's really just the defense of the last paper defending the power of the Senate to carry through with impeachment proceedings, being the judiciary power in impeachments. Once again, you have the House of Representatives are going to be the ones that vote for impeachment. The, they file the articles of impeachment. All they need for that is a majority in the House of Representatives. And then in the Senate to convict on that impeachment, you need two-thirds of the Senate. So you, there's much more power needed in the Senate to do this. So in this paper, uh, Hamilton, he responds to the criticism of the impeachment powers of the Senate. The first contention is that the power confounds legislative and judicial powers. So this one, I think he goes through five different contentions that he he adroitly uh, addresses very quickly and, and effectively. Uh, this This one... The power of impeachment, anyone that's afraid of an executive power that's far too powerful, uh, they should like this idea. I don't really know where there's much contention in a modern age of uh, impeachments. So he starts off, he states, and I quote, A review of the principal objections that have appeared against the proposed court for the trial of impeachments will not improbably eradicate the remains of any unfavorable impressions which may still exist in regard to this matter. So it's just him saying... Essentially, we're going to be going over, we're going to review this in this paper. So the next he states, and I quote, The first of these objections is that the provision in question confounds legislative and judiciary authorities in the same body in violation of that important and well-established maxim which requires a separation between different departments of power, end quote. So when he means the intermixture of judiciary and legislative, he's saying, well, you have the legislative branch in the Senate, they are also now carrying out judiciary powers because they are the court of impeachment for the uh, for impeachments in the presidential and as well as the the Supreme Court. So Hamilton he argues that the meaning of this concept has been discussed in before papers. These papers laid out a partial intermixture of departments, uh, and this is imperative in special purposes, special situations that are necessary for the proper mutual defense against the branches against each other. Because then in this case, you would have, as the judicial department, he explained in the last paper, if you had the Supreme Court carried out, then you would also have to have the Supreme Court carry out the criminal case as well. And then it would just be overkill, be double jeopardy. So really, the best place to hand this power is in the Senate. It's kind of almost like the worst case scenario who is it that you hand it to and this is the one power that he saw and the founder saw as the most stable power to handle uh as the court of impeachments so next he goes on to state and i quote the true meaning of this maxim has been discussed and ascertained in another place and has been shown to be entirely compatible with a partial intermixture of these those departments for special purposes preserving them in the main distinct and unconnected this partial intermixture is even in some cases not only proper but necessary to the mutual defense of the several members of the government against each other an absolute and or qualified negative in the executive upon the acts of the legislative body is admitted by the ablest uh, adepts in political science to be an indispensable barrier against the encroachments of the latter upon the former and it may perhaps 
with no less reason be contended that the powers relating to impeachments are as before in intimated an essential check in the hands of that body upon the encroachments of the executive. So really what he's saying is this is a defense from the legislative department against the executive department. The executive also has its own defense against the legislative department. It's called the veto power, which they consider it the qualified negative. So this is just another example of a safeguard and a defense against other branches. So Hamilton, he uses the executive magistrate's power to veto um, also, additionally, which would be considered really an executive and a legislative power, kind of like how the power for impeachment in the Senate is considered a legislative and a judiciary power. So there is a co-mixture there as well, because with a veto, if you're turning down law, then really essentially that gives you legislative power with a veto in a way, to an extent. It's limited. That's why they call it the qualified negative rather than absolute negative. So Hamilton expresses that this power is to be split between the two branches of the legislature. That's, that's an, another additional um, point and claim that he makes, which doesn't make this a complete absolute power of impeachment. So he states, and I quote, The division of them between the two branches of the legislature, assigning to one the right of accusing, to the other the right of judging, avoids the inconvenience of making the same persons, both accusers and judges, and guards against the danger of persecution from the prevalency of a factious spirit in either of those branches, as the concurrence of two-thirds of the Senate will be requisite to a condemnation. The security to innocence from this additional circumstance will be as complete as itself can desire. End quote. So he's saying having this power laid in the two branches of the legislature acts as a safeguard because and additionally the senate you're going to need two-thirds which is much more than a majority vote which also safeguards the the executive branch as well and and in you know spreading this power in those two different authorities in the legislative branch does also is also a uh, safeguard on the executive executive branch so the second objection to the senate as the court of impeachment is, it gives this body an overaccumulation of power, tending to represent aristocratic powers. Hamilton contends that the House of Representatives also has a role in impeachments as well as originating money bills. Hamilton argues that in this form of Republican government, all branches provide a fair match for every other branch of the government, and the real powers derive from the people themselves, which keep all bodies, including the Senate, in check. So he states is a long quote, but I think it's worth your time. He states, and I quote, But independent of this most active and operative principle to secure the equilibrium of the National House of Representatives, the plan of the convention has provided in its favor several important counterpoises to the additional authorities to be conferred upon the Senate. The exclusive privilege of originating money bills will belong to the House of Representatives. The same House will possess the sole right of instituting impeachments. Is not this a complete counterbalance to that of determining them? The same House will be the umpire in all elections of the President, which do not unite the suffrages of a majority of the whole number of electors, a case which it cannot be doubted will sometimes, if not frequently, happen. The constant possibility of the thing must be a fruitful source of influence to that body. The more it is, com the more it is contemplated, the more important will appear this ultimate, though contingent, power of deciding the competitions of the most illustrious citizens of the Union for the first office in it 
it would not perhaps be rash to predict that as a mean of influence it will be found to outweigh all the peculiar attributes of the Senate. End quote. So this is really long here. What he's saying, the House of Representatives has its own independent power, uh, such as making bills, emitting bills, as well as pushing for the articles of impeachment. So if the Senate wanted to impeach the president, the Senate could do nothing about it until the House of Representatives goes through with the action of filing for the articles of impeachment. So that really gives the preemptory power to the House of Representatives. And additionally, at the very end, which I thought was very interesting, he mentioned if the electoral votes are, are uh, if they're tied for two different presidential candidates, it does go to the House of Representatives a vote on who the president is to be. And that's kind of determining this same thing where you say, well, the House of Representatives also has its own power in determining who the president is as well. So the third, so this isn't a complete absolute power in the Senate. So the next objection he goes to, the third one, uh, to the Senate as a court of impeachments is derived from their role in the appointments of office. Uh, contenders emphasize that the Senate should not have the power and I quote, of rendering those who hold offices during pleasure dependent on the pleasure of those who appoint them. Hamilton argues that this is not the case. To begin with, the impeachment process isn't the sole responsibility of the Senate. Like I mentioned before, the House of Representatives have a role to play as well to add an additional security. Um, so next he states, and I quote, and I'm going to go over what he means when he says, you know, appointment to office for the Senate. He states, and I quote, if any further arguments were necessary to evince the improbability of such a bias, it would be found in the nature of the agency of the Senate in the business of appointments. It will be the office of the president to nominate and with the advice and consent of the Senate to appoint. There will, of course, be no exertion of choice on the part of the Senate. They may defeat one choice of the executive and oblige him to make another, but they cannot themselves choose they can only ratify or reject the choice of the president, end quote. So this is kind of similar to what their positioning is in the House of Representatives in the role of impeachment. Uh, officers are to be approved by the Senate, but the nomination comes from the executive. It comes from the president. The president is the one to nominate uh, these, these officers. And really what the contention is from the dissenters are, well, they also have the power of officers, of appointing officers, so why is it that they should also have this power? Because then they can use their political power of impeachments where they can get rid of these same officers if they wanted to. And they can, you know, bend the whims of these officers. And really also there's the House of Representatives, once again, that have to vote for impeachment. Uh, then it would go to the Senate. And then additionally, the person that actually nominates all of these, these officers in the executive branch is the president. And then they are to be... They are then to be uh, ratified or rejected by the Senate. So the point is, the Senate can't specifically pick who who's in that power, who's an officer, who's in that position. So pretty much what they were afraid of at this time, I guess they were afraid of some sort of situation where an officer that the Senate appointed would somehow become the president. But that doesn't really make any type of sense. So they were just afraid of them having that influence in the executive branch and then also having the power to get rid of whoever the head of the executive branch is. But really the case is the president is the one that nominates and then the Senate approves. The Senate is not the one that chooses the nomination. So even if it is the president gets rejected, then he puts up another person, but he's not working on the whims of what the Senate says. So that's really his uh, 
That's how he addresses the problem. So therefore, Senate does not hold the independent power to approve and disapprove executive branch officials, rendering the ar argument absent of value. So next he goes on, he states, and I quote, They might even entertain a preference to some other person at the very moment they were assenting to the one proposed, because there might be no positive ground of opposition to him, and they could not be sure if they withheld their assent that the subsequent nomination would fall upon their own favorite or upon any other person in their estimation more merit meritorious than the one rejected. Thus, it could hardly happen that the majority of the Senate would feel any other complacency towards the object of an appointment than such as the appearances of merit might inspire and the proofs of the want of it destroy. End quote. This is him just pretty much going over this, that their preference is meaningless, what they want, because once again, the nomination is coming from the president. Uh, so the fourth objection, next he gets to, uh, it is derived from its union with the executive and the power of making treaties. So I guess they have a problem because the Senate could make treaties with the president. So next he, he's going to state this this objection. He states, and I quote, A fourth objection to the Senate in the capacity of a court of impeachments is derived from its union with the executive and the power of making treaties. This, it has been said, would constitute the senators their own judges in every case of a corrupt or perfidious execution of that trust. After having combined with the executive in betraying the interests of the nation in a ruinous treaty, what prospect it is asked would there be of their being made to suffer the punishment they would deserve when they were themselves to decide upon the accusation brought against them for the treachery of which they have been guilty, end quote. So he's saying, if you have a perfidious, a corrupt, a greedy treaty that's pushed through, it needs the approval of both the president and the Senate for this treaty. And if it's a greedy treaty, how are they themselves supposed to, because you have the president that followed through with the treaty and they also approved it, how are they themselves going to go, it's kind of hypocritical, how are they going to go and prosecute and get rid of, convict the president of a treaty that they themselves also approved? So contenders claim the Senate can confirm uh, ruinous treaties with the executive and then in turn impeach the executive for betraying the interests of America. Are they to impeach themselves then as well? Hamilton notes that this objection is the most earnest and derivative of reason than any other. So in other words, he's saying pretty much this is the most reasonable one that has been presented thus far. So next he states, and I quote, the security essentially intended by the Constitution against corruption and treachery in the formation of treaties is to be sought for in the numbers and characters of those who are to make them. The joint agency of the Chief Magistrate of the Union and of two-thirds of the members of a body selected by the collective wisdom of the legislatures of the several states is designed to be the pledge for the fidelity of the national councils in this particular. This convention might with propriety have meditated the punishment of the executive for a deviation from the instructions of the Senate or a want of integrity in the conduct of the negotiations committed to him, end quote. So really, what he's, he's mentioning here is, <clears throat> he's just saying, simply, you're going to have the joint, you, he's explaining the whole system, the way treaties are supposed to go, you're supposed to represent your several states, state legislatures, two-thirds of vote in the Senate, and then he says the very end, 
and this is this is supposed to be designed to create fidelity to the constitution fidelity to the national councils as in the people themselves and the convention might with propriety have meditated the punishment of the executive for a de deviation from the instructions of the senate or a want of integrity in the conduct of the negotiators committed to him so he's just kind of explaining the entire situation and this is where he's actually going to address in this next quote he states and i quote they might also have had in view the punishment of a few leading individuals in the senate who should have prostituted their influence in that body as the mercenary instruments of foreign corruption, but they could not with more or equal propriety have contemplated the impeachment and punishment of two-thirds of the Senate consenting to an improper treaty than of a majority of that or of the other branch of the national legislature. Consenting to a pernicious or unconstitutional law, a principle which, I believe, has never been admitted into any government, how, in fact, could a majority of the House representatives impeach themselves? Not better, it is evident, than two-thirds of the Senate might try themselves, unquote. So once again, he's really saying that how are you going to have a system, how, how is it going to be set up where they're going to somehow be able to kick themselves out, um, but kick the president out as well? Then, then how are they to account, account for themselves? So he states next, and, and he's going to go... He's going to go over and he's going to actually explain how this is erroneous and foundation and why it is. And, and really, it's just a, a regular principle of governance that as a whole body, the Senate isn't accountable singly as the uh, president would be because the president is one individual making one policy decision. When a Things are different to hold everybody accountable as a collective than it is to hold uh, accountable as a single individual. So next he states, and I quote, Yet I am deceived if it does not rest upon an erroneous foundation. He asserts, The truth is that in all cases it is essential to the freedom and to the necessary independence of the deliberations of the body that the members of it should be exempt from punishment for acts done in a collective capacity. End quote. Which is very interesting. It's what he's saying is you, they should not be punished for something that's done in a collective capacity because if it is done in a collective, a two-thirds vote then we kind of, we think of the goodwill that we trust the representatives themselves to make the right decision. And if it's done by two thirds of a vote, then at that point, we must just think that the Senate themselves are not acting in bad faith, that it is not that corrupt. It was just a bad policy that they pretty much accidentally implemented and they didn't realize the ramifications at the time. That's kind of the way that he's molding this one here. I do definitely see uh, what the anti-federalists are saying about this specific issue. Everything else, I mean, was pretty much fallacious, but this one specifically I think is very important because we should hold our senators to a certain to a certain uh, standard, and they're not held to a standard nowadays. And the idea, it's kind of an, a cop-out saying, everybody, well, everybody else agreed with it at the time, really. But at the end of the day, the the, the resolution for this is just to vote, which is very simple to just vote those senators out. And that's really the best way that this gets resolved. Solving problems in government with more government is not the answer. Solving problems in government with the people going and just voting those people out is, is really the answer because the people hold the power in this. They're supposed to hold the power in this system, this self-government-like system. So if the Senate purposely abused this power by perverting the instructions and motives of the executive in order to vindicate their own authority, then Hamilton claims, and I quote, we may thus far count upon their pride, if not their virtue. If this corruption from the leading members is proven, Hamilton explains, and I quote, 
The usual propensity of human nature will warrant us in concluding that there would be commonly no defect of inclination in the body to divert the public resentment from themselves by a ready sacrifice of the authors of their mismanagement and great disgrace. End quote. So this is what, what I said before is if you have two-thirds of the vote in the Senate, then you're counting that at, at this point, you are counting on their pride, not even really their virtue, meaning their pride of country, the pride of themselves. You don't want to pathetically go down this road, go down this trail like they're doing with this with this uh, January 6th commission right now. It's all over the news they've been talking about now for weeks. You don't want to go down that road to be known as the authoritarian nightmare that you were, kind of like now how we look back at the Patriot Act and we realize that it's an infringement on rights. But we're not going to sit here and prosecute every single person that's in the Senate that approved it. We're just going to look back at it and we're going to be like, wow, that's pretty pathetic. And now if you're a senator, what you're supposed to be driven by is not really your virtue at this point. At this point, you're supposed to be driven by your sense of pride in country, pride in yourself, that you don't want to let the people down and be looked upon. You know, in the in the past now, you know, in modern times in the past, looking at the people that passed and implemented the uh, Patriot Act, we look at George Bush and we wouldn't idiot at the end of the day for for constitutional liberties. Uh, private liberties and freedoms of individual Americans, individual rights, we look back at the Patriot Act and we go, wow, what a, what a group of morons. That's what we think. So essentially, this, this is now an appeal from uh, Hamilton. His appeal is that the pride of country, pride of themselves, should be able to resolve that problem itself and implementing bad policy through treaties, especially if you're having two-thirds of the vote. So in summation... To end all this, in summation, if the leaders of the Senate were to abuse this power of treaty and impeachment, other more prideful members of the body will point to the true creators of these usurpations and they will be cast upon with public resentment. In turn, most likely they would lose their Senate seat because people would just end up voting them out. And I think that's really the process. That's the best process to get this work done uh, for the most part. So that will conclude this one. Uh, for now, I greatly appreciate everyone tuning in. Make sure you check out the current event podcast. Those have really been kicking off. I have, you know, short clips that I'm now going to start adding as well to YouTube. I had them on Rumble. I highly suggest you subscribe to both of them. Uh, I would always use Rumble, but, you know, sometimes YouTube is a little better with the organization feature. Also, uploading speeds are a little bit quicker. I do like Rumble because they allow me to speak freely. They never give me a hard time about anything. They advertise my podcast. I get a very, very small amount of money made when people watch video, like very small, you know, in the sense. But uh, that, that's a much better platform. But, but just so everybody knows on YouTube and on Rumble, I'm going to have short videos to the current events. If you want to, you know, send them to your friend where I usually just debunk leftist theories and leftist myths, talk about what's going on in the news, bring up statistics and data to show how terrible a job this administration is currently doing with the economy. Uh, so that'll be it for this one. I greatly appreciate it. I advise you to check out some of the current event podcasts, and I will see you all next time. Thank you.